Well, it's good to see you. Larry always says, it's good to be seen when I greet him on Sunday. By the way, if you don't know Larry, Larry's the amen guy. Yeah. I love Larry. I love you all. But I, I, I love him expressing those amens and praises to the Lord and all that. It's good stuff. Not that he's the only one. We're going to get more of you to open up, you know. You're going to get more comfy. There you go. All right. Hey, tonight, I'm actually going to go back to Philippians chapter 2 at the beginning. I, I, I want to get a running start again, and I want to just sort of sweep into our passage tonight. There's just so much here, and God keeps revealing so much that I, I don't want to miss too much. I, I know I can't ever share everything. By the way, before we start tonight, a couple of things. One, Phil wanted me to uh, ask tonight if any of you would be available Friday morning, right, Friday morning, to go out to Top of the World and help start setting up for Saturday at the church picnic. Please see Phil tonight, okay? Uh, that's Phil right over there. Um, we're going to have a wonderful day on Saturday. It's going to be beautiful out there. We invite all of you to come. Uh, if it's, it's supposed to be 80 for a high in Phoenix, but that's in the afternoon. It will probably be at least 15 or 20 degrees cooler out at top of the world. So dress appropriately, okay? It's going to be beautiful out there, but it's going to feel like fall, okay? Uh, so we would love to have all of you come and be a part of our church picnic. And then speaking of that, I just also want to say, I'm sure you have noticed these last couple of weeks, we keep getting more and more and more new people coming which is a great thing. Praise the Lord for that. And I'm not just talking to you. I'm going to be talking to everybody for the next couple Sundays. We need all of you to just help us just be very accommodating and welcoming of our new people. And if they come in and sit in your seat, it's really not your seat. Um, let's Let's... Let these people come in and we'll find other places to sit. And listen, if we start running out of room, we have more seats that we took out. We'll bring those in. And if we fill that up, then we'll figure that out from there. But uh, we, we were pretty full on Sunday. And I just want to, again, just thank you all for being so loving and welcoming of all the new people that have been coming. So the book of Philippians is all about joy. And you want to know how serious God is about joy? So serious that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross to implant a joy within each of us that cannot be erased by any circumstance. That's how serious God is about joy. God is so serious about joy that he wanted to give us a joy that could not be erased by any circumstance, that could endure any trial that we encounter on earth. That's the kind of joy that we all ought to be interested in. And that's the kind of joy as a Christian that we ought to want to show others and manifest to others that we have that kind of joy. Now, obviously, we know that from our study of the Scriptures and the revelation of God that joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. 
So the only way that we can literally manifest that supernaturally is again by allowing the Holy Spirit to take over and to fill us and to control us. But it's deep, it's abiding, it's strong. It is not superficial and shallow like earthly happiness. No, God wants to implant a joy that cannot be affected by anything externally, but is always there, even through the pains and sorrows of life. Jesus himself was a great example of this, and the writer of Hebrews says it. He says, who for the joy that was set before him, he did what? He endured the cross. So that's the kind of joy that Paul wants to talk to the Philippians about. That's the kind of joy he wants to talk to us about, because let's be reminded, too, about a little background here of the Philippians. They were a poor church. They were a small church. They were a poor church. They were a persecuted church. They were a marginalized church. They were a maligned church. And it wasn't getting any better. It was only getting worse. They were becoming more persecuted, more maligned, more marginalized, and even poorer when Paul wrote this letter. That's why he was so anxious to send Timothy back, as we're going to see next week, to find out how they're doing in the midst of their circumstances. Is the joy of God enduring and persevering in spite of their outward circumstances. So I say all that because tonight I want us to look at the first 18 verses of chapter 2. And again, we're going to repeat a few things, but what I want us to see is there's four main things here that Paul says you and I need to do, if you will, in order to experience this kind of strong, abiding, and deep joy in our life that goes along with aligning ourselves with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and being controlled with the Holy Spirit, because they're all part of the will of God. The first one is in the first four verses of chapter 2. It is to be engaged as a member of the body of Christ. To be engaged as a member of the body of Christ, because the first four verses cannot be fulfilled unless you and I are part of a body where we have brothers and sisters in Christ that we can be exercising these things with. Now, I want to point this out, though, before I even get to that, because last week we talked about pursuing unity and humility and helpfulness, and we'll just touch on that. But I also want to say this. Notice back up in verse 1. God never asks us to give something that he has not already given. God never tells us to do something that he himself has not already done. So when Paul begins chapter 2 by saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort provided by love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, remember, he's coming at it from the standpoint that there is, but maybe I'm not applying it or activating it in my life. It's there, but I possess it, but it's, it's not really being applied. And the reason I say that is because what does God want us to do? God wants us to encourage others. But God says, I'll encourage you first. So the encouragement that we give to others is from, you know, the overflow of God encouraging us, verse 1. How about the comfort? Yes, the comfort provided by God's love towards us then is the same comfort that God wants us to pass along to others. So again, it's what? It's overflow. That's why I've shared for years, because God taught me very early on in the ministry, or even as a Christian, because all of us need to live this way, that our lives need to be lived out of the overflow. That's why so many Christians struggle 
to be something for others because they feel so depleted and drained themselves. And the only way we can effectively do that is to let God continue to fill us up so that then when we are ministering out there to others, we're simply ministering out of the overflow of what God has already done in us. So God encourages us so that we can encourage others. God comforts us by his love so we can comfort others. By the way, then we partner with the Holy Spirit, verse one, fellowship in the Spirit, so that then we can partner and fellowship with others. And then whatever affection and mercy we demonstrate towards others is simply because we have received the affection and mercy of God ourselves. So that's where Paul starts this whole thing. But again, that all presumes upon the fact that we're engaged in being a member of the body of Christ, which then leads me to verses 2, 3, and 4. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I did last week, but... Paul's simply saying, first of all, in verse 2, as a member of the body of Christ, pursue unity with one another. Complete my joy, be of the same mind, having the same love, being united in spirit, having one purpose. Now, I did want to point this out because I didn't last week. God is not saying uniformity here. He's not saying, I don't want diversity in the body because that would contradict what the rest of the scriptures teach. No, God loves diversity. God created us to be a diverse body. God does not want us to be uniform so that everybody looks alike, talks alike. That's not what this means. What it means is we all, though, should go back to the mind of Christ. And as we interact with each other, and as we form our goals for, say, a, our church body and all of that, we go back to, well, what's God think about this? What are God's goals? What, what, what does God want us to do? What's God's will? And we all move from that. We can still maintain diversity, but also have unity. And that's the amazing sort of supernatural thing that God does in his church, that he wants the church then to show the world that it actually can be possible for all these different people from all these different backgrounds with all this diversity to be able to come together and still live in unity. Second, pursue humility. Verse three, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. By the way, true humility is not putting ourselves down, but rather lifting others up. So many Christians have a misunderstanding of humility. It's not debasing ourself. It is having a proper view of ourself, but it is lifting others up to be more others-centered than self-centered. That's being a humble person. And then verse 4, pursuing helpfulness. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. So again, in these first four verses, how can we apply these verses? How can we be pursuing unity and humility with each other and helpfulness? Because it's obvious here, he's not talking to us as individuals. He's talking to us as a community of believers. How can we be putting this into practice if we are not engaged in being part of the body of Christ? And the Holy Spirit calls us out to be part of the body of Christ. And it's only then when we are engaged in being a devoted, faithful member of the body of Christ, fulfilling these things like unity, humility, and help us, can we be filled with joy? Because if we're out there trying to do it on our own, and we're not building relationships with our fellow Christians and trying to form partnerships and, and do things with other Christians, 
then we're, we're, we're going to miss a joy that God has for us on this earth by being part of a community of believers and part of something much bigger than ourselves. So that's where Paul starts. Secondly, in verse 5, the second way you and I can experience God's joy in our life is by adopting the attitude of Christ that he had toward one another. Not just Christ's attitude, but you'll notice verse 5, you should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. It's not just adopting his attitude about anything and everything. It's specifically in this passage, again, how we relate to each other. And you'll notice two things that I want to point out that Paul talks about here then in verses 6 through 11. Primarily, all of this can be boiled down to this. Jesus Christ did not allow his position, even as the glorified Son of God, nor his pride to keep him from being a servant and minister to others. That's why he says, look, Jesus did not regard equality with God to be something that he held on to because if he would have held on to it and stayed in heaven, then where would you and I be? So he said, I'm willing to let that go. (laughs) I'm willing to lay aside the independent use of my attributes for a time as God, the second person of the Trinity, and come to earth and take on human form. I'm willing to do all that. So obviously, what Paul is saying is, he didn't allow his position to get in the way of serving and helping others. And yet, human beings, mere human beings, who have, you know, obviously, we're so far beneath the Son of God, we many times allow our position, our prestige, to keep us from being a servant others. Well, if Jesus didn't allow his position to keep him from being a servant, how can you and I allow any position we would ever hold on earth to keep us from being a servant and a help to other people? And secondly, he obviously did not have pride, was not beneath him, even to take on as God the form of a human being and to allow those that he created to treat him the way he did. I mean, that's humility. I mean, he could have vaporized them if he wanted to in a second. Could have vaporized all of us if he wanted to. But obviously, that's not who God is. Thank the Lord. And yet, so often, we we allow our pride to get in the way of serving and helping others and being there for others. So he says, guys, If we want to experience joy, we've got to not only be engaged as a member of the body of Christ, and that's how we align ourselves with the Holy Spirit and experience this joy that is greater than the circumstances and situations of life, but we need to adopt the attitude of Jesus Christ, especially as it relates to how we relate to one another, you see, and how we interact with one another and how we are willing to, in a sense, sacrifice ourselves for others. So I'll say this again. Maybe that means giving up my seat where I normally sit so that some stranger or visitor can sit there instead, you see. It's things like that, just real practical things like that. That's the attitude of Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, since we're 
into this worship series. I, I just, I was even telling Nicole the other day, I said, I, I, I just see everything now through the lens of worship. So when I came to verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, it was just a reminder of me, that's worship. That's worship. In fact, we're going to talk about that in our upcoming Psalms on the series. But I wanted to point this out, and this is something Paul always came back to just to sort of keep driving that nail in, into, the, into the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. What's going on in verse 10 and 11? Bowing, every knee bowing, heaven on earth, under the earth, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, worship is for God alone. So if Jesus is being worshiped, then that means Jesus must be what? God, right. That's another thing that Paul's doing here. See, he, he's not only dealing with practical matters, he's also dealing with doctrinal matters at the same time, just weaving them together as a master does. So those are the first two things. But then I want to get to some new stuff here tonight in verses 12 through 18. The third way you and I can experience joy in our life, true joy, is to cooperate with God in the work that he's doing in us. Notice these verses. So then, by the way, those two words just link back up to the previous couple verses. In light of Christ's victory and ultimate vindication before the universe, Paul says, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, you continue working out your salvation with all in reverence. Now notice, he's not saying to work for your salvation. That's not biblical. We're already saved. We're going to get to what this means in just a moment. For the one, verse 13, bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. Now notice something here. Let's start with verse 13. Paul's saying to all of us, God is at work in us. And can I say that should be an encouragement and a hope to every one of us. God not only saved us, but after he saved us, God began to work in us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the third person of the, Holy, uh, the, third person of the Trinity is in us, so that there can be this continual spiritual work an operation taking place within us. That should encourage us every day. In fact, let me even encourage you even more. So that means that as a Christian, because God is at work in us, everything that we do from that kind of working matters. So many Christians are like, well, what I'm doing doesn't matter. If the God of the universe is at work in you, then what you do matters, you see. All right. But in verse 12, what he's saying is, yes, God is at work in you, but God is not just going to do it all. He's not going to just do everything for us, and we just sort of sit back very passively and just let go and let God. No. That's why Paul says, in light of Christ's victory, verse 10 and 11, and ultimate vindication, you continue to be active in working out your salvation. That means cooperating with what God wants to do. 
And that does bring joy. Every time in my life that I cooperated with what the Holy Spirit was seeking to do inside of me, that brought joy to my life. Every time I fought against the Holy Spirit's work in my life, every time I resisted what the Holy Spirit was trying to do inside of me, I lost my joy. So Paul is simply saying, cooperate and be active. Too many Christians today are way too passive when it comes to working out their salvation. In fact, you can't work out something passively. We've got to be Back to that word I used at the very beginning, engaged. Not just in the body of Christ, we've got to be engaged with our spiritual life. We can't just sit back and expect it to happen. We've got to do our part, you see. Well, what are some parts then that Paul points out here? Well, in verse 12, when he uses the word obeyed, he's simply saying, be attentive and make yourself available every day to the Holy Spirit. The word obey literally in the original language means to listen with very, very careful attention and to sort of present yourself. It, it's the, here am I, Lord, send me, and, and I'm listening, God. What, what, what do you have for me today? You know, who do you want me to be with? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? And then we, we make ourselves available. So the first way we can cooperate with God in the work is simply to keep listening and be attentive to his voice in, inside of us and to make ourselves available to him, offer ourselves to him every day. Second, to be consistent. Notice Paul says in verse 12, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Be a consistent Christian. Not a roller coaster Christian. Way up, way down, or, you know, faithful for a couple weeks and then unfaithful for, no, no. Build discipline and faithfulness and, and all of that consistency, you know, so that then we become reliable and dependable and, and people can count on us and God can count on us and all of that. And then... Be dependent. You say, where do you get that from? From the phrase, with awe and reverence. You see, th those words together means that, that we realize that we can't do this without God and that we need to rely and depend upon the Lord even in our activity. Just like I started out tonight by saying we need God in order to worship him. And so we need to be active in being dependent, you see, and, and relying on the Lord and realizing that we need him. And to try to do this without him would just end in utter failure. So that's the third thing that I see in this passage. First, you want to experience joy in your life, the joy that God sent his son to the cross to die for so that that kind of joy could be implanted in us and never erased by any circumstance or no trial could ever take away. Be engaged in the body of Christ. Secondly, have the same attitude towards one another that Jesus Christ had. Third, cooperate with God in the work that he wants to do within us. And fourth, Shine as lights 
in the world. That's what he says in verse 15. Notice the very end. You shine as lights in the world. And we're going to talk from verse 14 through 18. How do we do that? Because Jesus himself said, I'm the light of the world. But then he turned right around to his followers and said, through me, now you're the light of the world. And that's another reason why God implanted his Holy Spirit to be inside of us so that the Holy Spirit's presence and light of God could literally not only you know, be in us, but shine through us. And I want you to notice something here, and this is very important as far as how God did this. You, you'll notice that before God can work through us and shine through us out to others, he's got to what? He's got to first work in us. If we don't allow God to work in us and if we're not cooperating with the Holy Spirit within us and working out our own salvation, then our light is not going to be as bright or as consistent. Our light is going to be diminished or else we even, even can be filled with fear and intimidation and all of that. And, and like Jesus said, we can hide our light under a basket. And Jesus said, don't do that. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When you and I shine the light of God, there's joy. Joy even when we're persecuted, even when we're made fun of, even when we're maligned, even as the disciples, when we're imprisoned. The response of others is not what brings the joy. It is following the will of God and aligning ourselves with the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's why, again, God never holds us responsible for the response of people. He never says, you will experience joy that as you shine your light, oh, so many people will come to Christ or all these people will flood the church or, you know, all these Christians will become strengthened through your light. No, no, that's not up to us. All he says is, you will be filled with joy if you simply shine. That's why it's just, our heart's desire is a church. Just, we're just, we want to be a lighthouse. If nobody comes and nobody responds to the light, God's not going to hold us responsible for that. But God says, I want you to shine your light for me. I want you to be a light for me. Several ways we do that. Look at verse 14. First of all, don't fight amongst yourselves. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, he's not talking here about us grumbling or arguing against God like the children of Israel did back in the Exodus time. No, he's talking again about us getting along with each other, about having that humility and that selflessness and all of that. Because remember, later on in the book of Philippians, Paul's actually going to address two women by name in the church at Philippi who aren't getting along right now with each other, and their feud just between the two of them is actually affecting the whole body. And he's saying, somebody help these two women to mend their fences and get back together. Why? Because the witness of the church and the witness of us as Christians is always diminished when we're fighting with each other. We're not the enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We've got to Wake up as the church and realize who is the real enemy, if you will. And it's not us. It's not our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
So one of the ways that we shine our light is by, again, maintaining our unity and not fighting amongst ourselves. He goes on to say in verse 15, remember always our witness before an unbelieving world. He says, so that you may be blameless. Don't argue and grumble against each other so that you may be blameless and pure children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world. How many times does the church, ultimately God, have a bad reputation before unbelievers because unbelievers look at the situation in the church and all they see are people striving and disputing and dividing and fighting and can't get along with each other instead of loving each other. And did not Jesus say that to him the main characteristic of his people should be that we love one another as he loved us? By this kind of love, Jesus said, that I have for you, by that kind of love shall all men know that you are my disciples. That's the witness. Not grumbling and arguing and fighting amongst each other, but loving one another as Christ loved us. Four other things I want to point out here tonight. Verse 16, learn to live out the Bible. That's a way to shine as a light. He says, by holding on to the word of life, literally navigating every step of my life by the word of life. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. It's literally like the Christian's ultimate navigation system. You know, we have phones today and we have navigation systems in our car stuff. And God is simply saying to us, our navigation system for every step that we take in this world should be the word of life. That's what should guide us. That's what we should keep close. And that we literally live that out before the world, you see. And even before one another. Secondly, verse 16, learn to live for the day of Christ. In other words, as a Christian, I've got to come to grips with deferred gratification. Paul says, look, I'm not living for, and, and, and Paul even said to the Corinthians, don't judge anything before the time. What was the time? The time where everything would be laid out at the end. Not now. Paul says, don't seek to even evaluate your own life and ministry before that time. Don't try to evaluate everybody else's ministry and life before that time. Let everything play out and let the judge be the one that determines everything at the end. Paul always said, I'm living for that day. That's the day I'm living for. I'm not here to try to get my gratification from any day while I'm here on this earth. I'm ultimately living for well done, thou good and faithful servant that I hear from the lips of my Savior, Jesus Christ. So notice he says, by holding on to the word of life so that on the day of Christ, I will have a reason to boast that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. Paul says that's when it's going to come to, to light. Not before the day of Christ, but on the day of Christ. Did I run in vain? Did I live my life? You know, was it a waste or was it worth something? The day of Christ is what Paul says we should all be living for. Deferred gratification. Even Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, but lay up treasure in heaven where moth or rust does not corrupt it. Don't, don't live for the here and now. Live for eternity. Third, Learn to live selflessly. 
That's another way, again, tying into the rest of the passage we've looked at tonight, whether it's Christ or, or earlier on about, you know, uh, looking out for the interests of others rather than just our own interests. Learning to live selflessly is a way you and I shine our light. He says in verse 17, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and I'm rejoicing. Well, that, that's language of selfless sacrifice. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I'm being empty for you. And yet Paul is saying, you realize, and we're going to get to this, that brings joy. That's why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. When you and I give of ourselves to others, isn't there something inside that God does that just, it's the, we don't even need a thank you. We, we don't need praise. We don't need applause. We don't need a pat. There's something inherently that hits the right spot for us whenever we just live selflessly. And what that is is really the presence of the Holy Spirit saying even at that moment, good job, good job because that's the way Jesus lives. And then, and this comes full circle to even, again, us talking about the importance of worship and praise and rejoicing, learning to rejoice in sacrifice. Notice what Paul says. I'm glad that I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, and I'm glad and rejoice together with all of you, and in the same way you also should be glad and rejoice together with me. Because we're all sacrificing. And doesn't it bring joy, Paul said? The Philippians were becoming poorer. They were the, maybe the poorest church Paul ever was associated with, and yet they were the ones giving an offering to help others who actually were more well-off than them. Out of their poverty, Paul said. He told the Corinthians, out of their poverty, they're giving. They were maligned, but they were becoming more maligned. They were marginalized. They were becoming more marginalized. They were persecuted. They were becoming more persecuted. And yet there was this joy. And Paul said, I'm right there with you because I'm in prison for the cause of Christ and for exclaiming Christ and exalting Christ and proclaiming Christ, and yet there's joy. I'm not sitting here in, under house arrest in Rome, depressed and discouraged. There's a joy that cannot be taken away from me. And Paul's saying, so let's just rejoice together. And that brings us back to even again why God calls us not just to be worshipers individually, and to rejoice and to praise God individually. But notice, two times in verse 17 and 18, to rejoice together, to come together and be together and rejoice together. Even if we're going through hard times, we're doing it together. <laughs> and, and, in the word joy and rejoice, it's always connected with grace. You can't separate the two, really, linguistically or biblically. In other words, to experience joy is to realize 
I'm a recipient of God's grace and favor. And that's why Paul is saying to the Philippians, that's why I can be filled with joy right now in my circumstance and you and Philippi can be filled with joy in your circumstance because it is a realization that at any time we can go to the throne of grace and we can find the grace we need and that we know like Paul that his grace is sufficient and we can immerse ourselves in grace and always know that no matter what our circumstance, no matter what our season of life, no matter what pain or suffering or sorrow or anything that we're going through on this earth, that God's grace can just overwhelm us and envelop us and surround us and fill us and therefore we can have joy in spite of whatever circumstances we're going through. And we can bring that joy that is implanted within us that cannot be erased and we can bring it together as God's people and we can remind each other ultimately about the glory and grace and goodness of God and about the sufficiency of God that no matter what we're going through, His grace is sufficient. And therefore we can rejoice together. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight. For a joy that cannot be erased. A joy that can endure no matter what trial we ever go through on this earth. No matter what season you call us to go through, God. No matter what fire we have to walk through on this earth. God, your grace is enough. Your grace is sufficient. And because of that, Lord, and that realization in our lives, we can be filled with joy. We can have that deep, abiding, strong, inner sense of well-being no matter what our circumstances are. And I pray, God, that we would fight for that kind of joy in our lives. That we would not settle for the superficial and shallow joys and happiness that the world offers to us or even that the devil may offer us in contrast to, Lord, what only you can give us through the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. So God, I pray tonight that we would empty ourselves to be filled by you. And that God, each and every day of our lives, we would shine as lights. We would be so full of joy every day, no matter what, what's happening in our lives or what's happening around us, that literally other people, especially those that do not have a relationship with you, would be dumbfounded as to how we can be so joyful so that, Lord, we can point them to the giver of true joy, and that's you. God, you want to create at the Oasis Church a community of joyful people who, Lord, can't wait to come back on Sundays and Wednesdays and rejoice together in who you are and what you are and what you've done in our lives. And I pray, God, that then each and every day as individuals, that, Lord, we just live our lives filled with your joy, worshiping you and praising you for, Lord, doing such supernatural things that 
the world or no one else, Lord, can ever take it away. God, continue to grow your people. Help us to continue to shape our attitude around the attitude of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, especially as we relate to one another. Take us all home safely tonight, God. Give us a great rest of this week. We pray, God, over JT and Blair's wedding coming up on Friday and even for the rehearsal tomorrow. We pray over our church picnic on Saturday, God, that you would just watch over all those that are traveling back and forth to the top of the world. And Lord, you'll just protect us and just give us a great day together. And then God, again, I just pray that even now you would be putting a fire in the hearts of your people to, to just, we can't wait to get back here on Sunday morning to just rejoice together again in you, God. Would you give us a great Sunday? Would you help us to shine our light for you? And God, as you continue to bring new visitors and new people in, would they see the difference, God, that you make in this fellowship? Would they not see us, but would they see clearly you? And God, even as they step out of their cars out there, even in the parking lot, would they sense your presence as soon as they walk on this property? Would they sense there's something different here, God, and it's not us, it's you? God, would you continue to create a hunger for you in this community? God, would we get rid of our, our indifference and just a lack of real hunger and thirst for you spiritually? Would you light a spiritual fire in all of us, God, that cannot be extinguished? These things, God, we ask for your glory and in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.